Welcome to No Hype, the podcast about truth, science, and the future of marketing. Brought to you by your hosts, Allison Dietz and Brett House. Today, we have a special episode of No Hype. We are here today to introduce my new co-host, Brett House. Brett is a vice president at Newstar in our marketing solutions business unit, and he's responsible for the product and marketing strategy of our data, MarTech, and analytics solutions. He's been instrumental in the double-digit growth of our business in the last couple of years as well. Before Newstar, Brett and I actually worked together at another company that starts with the letter N, Nielsen. Brett joined Nielsen via the Exalate acquisition, and he had helped where he'd helped transform Exalate, a MarTech startup, from a data-as-a-service product into a highly successful enterprise SaaS business, which was acquired by Nielsen. On a personal note, Brett and I both love cycling, although he's more into the open road, whereas I prefer the Peloton. Brett, welcome officially to the No Hype Podcast. Thanks, Allison. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, Brett, you've had quite the career in the marketing and SaaS world, as I just described. Can you share a little bit about your career path to date? Sure. I think I'll go back to when I got my MBA, sort of post-MBA world, and I won't take you through every uh, every road, every path that I took along the way. But I really did get my start in the MarTech space in the early rich media world uh, at a company called Unicast, uh, which was like many of the rich media companies, Point Roll, iBlaster, iWonder, eventually acquired by Seismic. So that's sort of where I got my start in terms of the digital marketing ecosystem uh, post-MBA. I had run a startup uh, that helped get me into my, or get me through my MBA, you know, which was also in the marketing technology space, but really, really early days before sort of the, it, it was even before the advent of ad networks and uh, ad exchanges and DMPs and such. So started in the rich media space, took that experience all the way through to a company called Exalate, uh, which many in the ad tech and martech world know a lot about. They were known uh, as a data as a service or a data marketplace uh, comparable to a blue Kai. And they transformed themselves into a DMP shortly before acquisition by Nielsen. So you saw a lot of that in the space with Blue Kai being acquired by Oracle, with aggregate knowledge being uh, acquired by Newstar, uh, and by Exalate being acquired by Nielsen. So that was a, a terrific sort of journey to be on, to sort of be in that mature, slightly mature startup space, uh, to be acquired by a much bigger organization, uh, and then to use that as a launch pad to build and create something new within that large, larger organization of, of Nielsen. So, so that was really what brought me to Newstar is that that experience was very comparable to what uh, I'm doing here at Newstar um, from, a, from a MarTech stack data and analytics perspective. So that's the long and short of it. <laughs> you said DMP. In this episode, we won't get into whether or not DMPs are dead, but it is something that we may talk about in future episodes. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about your experience and that path. Um, and particularly, it seems like you have a really strong interest in SaaS and you know the startup world. Which experience would you say had the biggest impact on your career? I'd have to say it's that experience. Um, because when you're in a startup experience, you know there's there's a lot of agility there's a lot of speed. Oftentimes you're being reactive to rapid changes and making quick pivots and pretty heavily strategic decisions, you know, next to the coffee uh, bar, for example, versus the requirement of, of larger, more matrix organizations of multiple stakeholders, multiple meetings. So I came from that world of sort of speed, agility, 
quick decision-making, quick pivoting, which was Exalate, and then joined a much larger, much more matrix organization and had to adjust not only my style, but the way that I worked, the way that I coordinated with other teams, with other people within the organization, to really make it work uh, smoothly and, and to also inject a little bit of the, the speed and, and uh, flexibility that I took from that startup space into uh, a larger, uh, slightly more slowly moving organization, right? And there are times when you when you when you come across a little bit of friction, right? Because you want to push things forward, you want to make quick decisions, you want to have uh, fewer steps ahead of you in terms of, of getting something, getting an idea uh, to market, for example. But that evolution from startup sort of mentality, management style, day to day in the office work style to a larger, more matrixed organization like Nielsen was transformative for me. Uh, it taught me a lot about the business world, how to manage all types of teams, how to cross-functionally manage teams across a very big, very complex organization. And it really set the stage for me going forward. So I thought that was a pretty transformative experience in my life. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about a lot of those things. I feel like in our roles in particular, we've had to apply, well, one, we use a lot of that those experiences around speed and agility. We get a, we get a lot done at, at Newstar. So I can see why that has been relevant. But also you talked a little bit about the cross-functionality. And I think one of our roles in particular as it relates to you know the function that we play at Newstar is, is really requires us to work with product, with sales, with you know senior leadership, you know all different types of, of individuals within the organization. And so we get to see and get exposed to a lot, but at the same time, you know, just requires us to, to utilize those skills around you know, um, working with different teams and different functions. Yeah, and I, and I think in the startup world, you get exposure to just really uh, sort of in the weeds exposure to every function. The silos are a little bit less deep, so to speak. So you're really closely interacting with the strategy leads, with the partnership leads, with the sales leads, with the product leads, with the the head of, of finance, where some of that stuff might be a little bit more obtuse or a little bit further away from your day-to-day in a larger organization, just considering the layers uh, in, in sort of uh, between you and them. With a startup, you get exposure to all of that. And so it just gets you, you get your finger on the pulse of things that I think that I took from my MBA uh, and finally saw coming to fruition in sort of my professional life was having my finger on the pulse of pretty strategic decisions being made in all aspects of the business, not just a marketing role uh, or a product role or a sales role. So I, I think that's where that, that experience gave me a much broader holistic view of businesses and how you make businesses successful, how you grow an organization, and how it takes multiple sort of people in the same boat to make that happen, multiple functions. And to do that in a larger organization is a bit more challenging because they're just much larger teams. They're much larger institutions. So getting everybody in the same room, herding the cats and getting them all moving in the same directions, a bit more challenging, but you have to do that in sort of bits and pieces. Uh, as opposed to, try to trying to do it across an entire organization, which is what you do within a startup. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think we 
it requires you to learn is how to be scrappy and how to you know get stuff done. There may not always be you know a playbook that you have to follow, and you kind of have to figure out how do you work with these individuals, how do you work with this cross-functional team to make things happen. A great example, I think, of being scrappy, I think, relates to a lot of the ways that we work and the projects that we take on at Newstar. So, you know, what would you say has been your most memorable project so far? I was thinking about this uh, in, in advance of this of the podcast, and uh, there's been a bunch, and you and I have certainly worked on a lot of very interesting projects together, but I'm a builder. So let me quote Lou Reed, between thought and expression lies a lifetime, or another way to put that is the quote that strategy without execution is hallucination. And I take those terms, which are very lofty sort of expressions, uh, kind of poetic snippets, I take those terms to heart. And I say, you know, and I've learned the hard way working at startups that you do have to be scrappy. You have to know how to build something, right? What the moving parts are. You may not be an expert in every area, uh, but you got to know how to build things uh, and how to collect the resources, the people, uh, and set the plan in place in order to bring that thing to life. And I think a good example of what we've done uh, here at Newstar is is Brave New Worlds. And I know, um, you know, that's a topic that is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, but, but really, the, the, it came out, out of a, one of those hallway conversations saying, we need to have a big uh, kind of blowout event. And then it evolved. And, and so we said, well, what is this event going to look like? How do we compete with the dream forces and the ramp-ups of the world? You know, it's not going to be anything of quite that size and scope to begin with. But how do you get something like this started? And, and, and what should we be putting together from a content perspective, from a people perspective, uh, from a promotion perspective, to really launch this this rocket ship, so to speak. Um, so the first year we did this, which was in 2020, uh, was a bit of a struggle because I was doing I was doing a lot of the tactical work, right? In terms of well, we got to build a website, we've got to build this, we've got to attract talent, and I brought the team together and we went out and did a ton of outreach to bring some of the best and brightest in the marketing and analytics space together. Uh, to try to bring some value to the audience so that it's not just, just like this this podcast is really intended to be, it's not about um, sort of industry platitudes and things that none of us are going to really learn from. It's about value creation. How do we share information uh, through our own lens, but importantly, through the point of view of brands and agencies and partners and publishers uh, and the analyst community that's actually going to educate people and make them a little bit better at their jobs. And so... That's where Brave New Worlds came from, and I and I sort of dug deep into uh, uh, my reading past and and my jazz listening past to come up with inspiration of how you could make this something spontaneous and interesting and educational all at the same time. And in two years, we've attracted about five thousand um, uh, viewers because it's been virtual. Uh, so it's been a pretty successful launch um, from scratch. Uh, and, and a program that I, I, I'm excited to see moving forward. Yeah, and you mentioned virtual because that was one of the things that has been an extra challenge as part of that as well, is that you know trying to drive engagement and making it fun and interesting and, and a great learning environment in a virtual world. Um, you know, we just wrapped up our second installment of Brave New Worlds, as you said, and and all of that content is now on demand uh, at bravenewworlds.newstar. Just to kind of talk a little bit more about those sessions and the content, what are some of those sessions that you feel that listeners should not miss? I was thinking of three, and I was, I was going to make a comment about the virtual uh, uh, comment, is that, yeah, we're all 
dealing with sort of virtual Zoom fatigue, video fatigue. But one thing I did learn is how difficult it is to produce a virtual event. In fact, I think it's a lot harder than producing a physical event. I could not agree more. It was way harder, especially when we had to decide to pivot, um, which, you know, I think that's an interesting learning in and of itself is, you know, making those tough decisions about pivoting from an in-person event, which we are all so excited to do in person and to get, you know, face to face with with industry um, contacts and partners again as soon as we can. But, you know, we we made that tough decision to pivot to virtual. And that wasn't an easy one. And within a week, maybe two weeks, we made a complete shift in, in what we were going to do from a production perspective, who we were going to be attracting to this event, uh, et cetera. And, and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a fun, fast, furious ride. Um, but I think you can see uh, the results in, in terms of the quality of content. And again, it's it, the value that it's generating for the people that are watching it. You know, you don't go to something like that to, to hear platitudes um, uh, or advertorial content from a sponsor. You go there to, to learn something. And, and hopefully we had amassed uh, a good collection of, of the people that, that we think really are leading the way in sort of the future of advertising, the future of analytics, because our audience is super discerning. They're, they're incredibly smart people that are leaders in their fields, whether it's data science, uh, analytics, uh, uh, content, um, brand marketing, uh, et cetera. And, and you, and you got to uh, impress them. Right. And that's difficult to do. Right. Right. And when, I mean, we just had Joanna O'Connell on the podcast um, in a previous episode, and I know her session was really incredible. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about, you know, what you found interesting from, from her and maybe some of the other speakers? Yeah. And I was going to mention that was probably, um, I didn't answer your question directly, but that was probably uh, my, one of my favorite sessions uh, was the Joanna O'Connell keynote, which interestingly, without pre-reading or seeing any of her content ahead of time uh, was very comparable to a lot of the thinking and in, 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 uh, predicting that we were doing internally around the future of advertising the ecosystem, the, the primary challenges, whether it's data deprecation or otherwise, that, our, uh, that brands are facing, um, that the, the marketing world in general is facing. So I thought she was uh, excellent, very down-to-earth, very no-nonsense. She always is. <laughs> she always is. Yeah. And I love her, her, her point where it's like, you, you can't, there's no time to waste and I'm going to prove it. Uh, and, and then she goes on to say that uh, you can't just hire someone. You've got to think holistically and you've got to think big because the changes that are happening in our ecosystem, the disruption that is happening in our ecosystem is big. Uh, and it's tied to all of the data that we've been powering much of our marketing, you know, entirely our, our, our addressable marketing uh, in the past. And, and she was like, you can't just hire someone to manage the cookie, right? Just to get some guy that, that manages the cookie problem. It's got to be a holistic cross-functional collection of legal operations, technology, marketing, uh, C-suite, right? Because data that, science, data science <laughs> that those are the people that are going to be fundamentally having to answer for why is our audience reach plummeted? Why are we not able to measure effectively across all of these channels, right? Why don't we really know uh, who our, our target audience is or, or what household they're associated with, right? Um, the death of the cookie shouldn't spell the end of sort of consumer knowledge for brands. Uh, it's the end of one snippet of code that's been placed all over the internet uh, and used for a long time. But, but there's things that are going to uh, uh, 
you know, replace it. But again, you have to think more broadly uh, in terms of data deprecation across uh, uh, the span of marketing and how that's going to impact all of us going forward and how we should holistically think of our strategies, um, um, you know, beyond just simply the cookie. Yeah, I agree. And I think she does a really nice job of talking about how historically, you know, we we used the cookie and, and it wasn't always the best path forward. It was just what was available and it was what we were using. But, you know, we ha- still haven't sorted out things like frequency and, and you've been obviously talking a lot about reach and how do you reach those consumers effectively, but how do you ensure that you don't keep inundating them with the same message over and over again? She, I mean, she definitely has a really strong point of view about there's a, there's ways for us to improve how we engage with our audiences and that customer experience and, and the future of that customer experience. Yeah, and consumer experience, I think that, you know, can be kind of a, a, a hypey term, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what is consumer experience? You know, you know, what's an omni-channel experience? What is the, these terms that we use to try to describe uh, mm-hmm. something? And you just, a lot of times I think anecdotally back to my own life and the experiences that I have with brands that I care about, with advertising, with content. Uh, and, and that, at the end of the day, what are we solving for when we're solving for all of these data, identity, uh, uh, challenges. We're solving for delivering experiences that actually are meaningful to people, uh, uh, that aren't disruptive, that are consented in, in your ways, or you're raising your hand because you want to have a, that, that exposure to that brand. Um, and, and if you're not solving for that, then you're, you're, you're kind of solving for the wrong problem. Right. right? So I, I think that's a very important point. It's like, you know, let's bubble this up. Let's take it 10,000 feet up and say, what is it that we really want to deliver? And then how do we define that term? You got to define what good customer experience is. It's not just your experience with the UI, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like an e-commerce website. It's your experience with a brand across every aspect of your life, every screen, mm-hmm. uh, uh, physical, digital, etc. Um, and it's very hard to do. So we're so, we're trying to solve for very challenging problems. Absolutely. And the world is changing in terms of the way that we do it, but it's also an opportunity, which I think is exciting. Can we also talk a little bit about analytics? I mean, as you know, that's what's near and dear to my heart. So were there sessions that were related to analytics that you found really interesting from Brave New Worlds? I'd have to say the H. Charles Thomas from Facebook, who's the head of data science for Facebook, uh, you know, knowing what's happening in the world uh, with Facebook, it's very interesting to hear his perspectives on what his key KPIs are in terms of, of driving engagement, uh, content engagement, for example, how he sets up his organization for sort of analytics and data-driven marketing success. Uh, because a lot of this ties back to fundamentally people, right? And the people that are managing this on a day-to-day basis, we could have all the automation, all of the platforms and marketing stacks and uh, in the world. But if your departments, whether it's your, you know, your, li- your linear media team and your digital media team that are operating in budget silos that aren't communicating to one another as effectively as they should, or if it's your data science department, your marketing department, and your privacy legal team, right? Um, the, the way that you align people around larger goals of the organization is critical because if that doesn't work, everything else falls apart and guess what it impacts? Consumer experience, exactly. right? We're going to see that we're going to see the breaks. We're going to see that ad that follows us around on every device for a product that either we're not interested that we already bought or that we bought on somebody somebody else's behalf, right? Something's happening here on the human side that's impacting uh, the 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 mousetraps, the platforms. 
that are actually delivering that ad. And so if you fix the if you if you fix and align the people around the right types of goals, the right types of uh, organizational structure, you can start to harmonize your data, uh, uh, your stack, right, and have everybody sort of rowing in the same direction. And I think at the end of the day, that drives good customer experience. And I think that's really what um, a Charles Thomas from from Facebook was saying. Uh, and he's got you know loads of experience um, working for USAA, right, uh, uh, and other big organizations running these running these teams. So um, it's great to hear how people think about. Um, managing very large organizations and, and getting people all, all swimming in the same direction, so to speak. We consistently keep finding that organization and organizational silos is, is, is a hurdle for sure. Um, you know, obviously there's other issues like data and, um, you know, methodologies and just kind of working through some of those, those um, technical aspects. But organization is always, continues to be something that we hear. And in fact, was a finding that we found in our research that we did with the MMA last year around, you know, what's, what sort of, um, challenges do brands have to overcome in order to, you know, adopt solutions like multi-touch attribution and, and you know, complicated analytics. I mean, organization, getting your organization and getting everyone rowing in the same direction is a really key in order to, to, you know, take those insights and actually take action from them. And a lot of times it's those breaks in organizational setup uh, and within people uh, that block that ability to, to make a solution come to life, right? The solution itself may not happen uh, if people aren't all aligned around what the objective, the goal, uh, and the output is going to be, what success looks like, right? So people blame the solution uh, instead of sort of looking inward uh, and saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Did we have everything set up, all the people aligned, all the platforms configured in the right way to ensure that this solution that we thought was going to be the golden goose um, succeeded. And oftentimes you'll find a lot of breakages in that, in that sort of organizational structure or otherwise that's really preventing the solution from succeeding rather than the solution itself being uh, a problem. Right. So let's talk a little bit about you know what what we think listeners want to hear and what we're planning to cover in the upcoming episodes. We've been talking a little bit about you know looking back and you know what we've done in the past year, which I think is great, and some some of the incredible things that you might expect um, going forward as well. But are there certain topics that you want to see us cover in upcoming episodes? Yeah, I think three come to mind. Uh, one is sort of the back to the future topic of, of contextual advertising. <laughs> back to the future. I like that. I, like that one. <laughs> I remember interviewing for, for contextual advertising jobs uh, 15 years ago uh, when that was a thing, that when that was when that was the next uh, uh, big thing, you know, along with, with programmatic media. And, and what we're seeing is that you can do sort of de-identified advertising uh, that's aligned with the context that people are associating themselves with uh, and start to do some pattern recognition in terms of, you know, how, how interested are they in this content, right? Uh, so hopefully it's, it's a solution that's a lot more interesting than third-party cookie targeting, right? Where, you know, we were talking about this yesterday where you're, where you're thrown into a segment based on uh, a visit to a particular site just because I'm visiting cars.com doesn't necessarily mean that I'm an auto intender, right? Or USA Today travel doesn't mean that I'm planning a vacation. But if you start to connect a bunch of connect contextual signals uh, in a de-identified world, right, together, you can start to predict intent and consideration, uh, uh, whether it's intent to, to consume more content like that or if it's intent to buy a product. 
it does give you some of the same predictive capabilities without all of the problems associated with cookies and privacy. Um, so I think that's that's a big topic. It, it to me opens up the door for a conversation around uh, the open web, right? And we know that eighty percent of media spend uh, is against twenty percent of total media because a lot of it's happening in these premium publisher authenticated environments. The, the, the walled garden, authenticated environments, increase, increasingly retail media networks, et cetera. All of these are authenticated environments. What about the rest of the media, which is 80% out there that we all interact with every day? You know, it, can, can you target off of that? Can you uh, uh, have marketing programs that, that reach that scale of audience without, uh, in an accurate way? Right? So you're not sacrificing accuracy, but in a, in a relatively de-identified privacy safe way. And so I think that contextual play, it's sort of contextual 2.0 or contextual 3.0 is really interesting. Um, I think clean room in terms of the topic of this, of this podcast, which is the no hype podcast and sort of discerning what is real versus what is smoke and mirrors. There's certainly a lot of clean room smoke and mirrors out there. And there's a lot of different definitions of what privacy tech, clean room tech really is. Single party clean room, multi-party clean room. There are a lot of terms being thrown around that I think um, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are starting to become up to speed on, but I think it's still, you know, a little bit um, before, it's a little bit before the chicken, before the egg kind of thing. And I think it's, there's an opportunity for us to, you know, to unpack that and to help everyone understand that the hype associated with clean rooms and the role that they're going to play. And we talk a lot about the terms, right? It's data lake house, it's data vault and data bunker and clean room, single party and multi-party. And I'm like, why are we creating all of these terms to define all of these things that are all without, without really discussing what are we solving for, right? We're solving for data collaboration in a privacy safe way. Yeah. Which does not involve data moving between point A and point B, right? And also the use cases associated with it. You know, we we talk a lot about you know utilizing clean rooms as a uh, in order to enable um, attribution or analytics. So I think really understanding what is the goal, not just you know you know a little bit about what you're trying to achieve, but what are you going to use it for, and how how does why does the clean room play a role, and what is what is the the use case you're going to apply it to? Yeah, and it's not just a solution; it's a privacy solution, right? It's it's part partly that. Uh, but it's got to be more than that. And, and again, what is the use case for, for the advertiser and, and what is real, what's not, and when should we expect for this to, uh, to become something that advertisers are actually requesting and asking about? Uh, I'm not fully convinced that there's a lot of demand from the market. Um, I think we're a little ahead of the curve. People are still looking to, how the hell do I solve the cookie problem? Um, so the clean room problem and, and sovereign identity and all these great uh, theoretical uh, uh, you know, privacy tech solutions, some which have been built, um, aren't, we're not seeing a ton of demand yet. Um, but I think it's, it's the next, it's sort of skating to where the puck is going. Um, so I think that's a really great one to really, um, um, delineate that and make sure we understand really what, what, what this is solving for and why it's important. And then the other one I think, and this is something that I know Allison is close to your heart is, is brand health and brand awareness in uh, those top funnel metrics that every big, especially CPG brand, but big brands around the world um, think about, right, of, of how do you reach a broad enough audience to put as many people into that top of the funnel so that as you move people through the funnel, so to speak, whatever the shape of that funnel might be, uh, a cylinder or otherwise, um, 
that you that you start with a big enough pie to hit your key sort of revenue targets and KPIs at the bottom of the funnel, right? From a conversion perspective. But I, but I think there's a lot of evolution. I think it goes beyond that. I think you're talking about, you know, short-term objectives. And I always say, you know, what you're talking about is really, how do I make the finance, you know, how do I make our VP of finance or our CFO happy? I think that, the, you know, there's a lot of initiatives and a lot of things that, you know, marketers are trying to achieve, which is I want this brand to exist well beyond my time here at this company. And that also is, you know, how do I spend my advertising dollars in a way that builds brands for, you know, future generations? And thinking long-term versus versus sort of reacting to the street, right? In the short-term thinking that drives so many decisions in the boardroom, right? We've got, we've got to pivot, we've got to make a decision because we've got these quarterly goals to hit, right? And are you sacrificing uh, long-term strategy, long-term brand health that is going to have, you know, X, Y, and Z benefits uh, for short-term gain? So, uh, you know, we think about that with children all the time, right? When we raise our kids, it's we say the short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, and, and are you in the long term yet? Because I'm still in the short term with my little kids. But yeah. I, I know yours are older than mine. So there's just, there's just moments. You're almost there. Yeah, moments <laughs> you're where you're like, there. I don't really want to have to do this on a Saturday night, you know, like give this long talk to my 14-year-old, you know, about the value of, of friendship and relationships and, and, and blah, blah, blah. But you but you know that, that that conversation might be that one conversation that he remembers 15 years from now. Right. And it, and it will at least set some sort of foundation or framework that he can go as a guidepost as to how he can alter his behavior for the long term, um, even if in the short term he's putting up uh, resistance to, to dad's feedback. Well, and, and that's really what marketers are choosing between oftentimes of how do I invest my, my advertising dollars for the short term? Because I know they'll have a quick return. Versus, you know, how do I how do I earmark some of those experiences for a longer term play? And and I think that's an, I think it's important. You have to do both, and you have to do both well. It's it's not an easy job the CMO has. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, Brett, thank you so much for spending some time with me so that our, our listeners could get to know you a bit. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and our future guests soon. And um, and I just wanted to say, you know, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Onwards and forwards.